Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us to Oktoberfest? Spooky. Spooky. <laughs> I'm Cynthia. Oh, I'm Stephanie. You have found the Dark Oak. Welcome back, friends. For those of you new to Oktoberfest, I'm going to explain. First, we start with a little campfire story. This is something just to kind of get you in the Halloween mood. This is a short story that you can memorize and tell to your kids, tell to your friends, your spouse, tell it around a campfire, tell it in the car, on a drive, wherever, you know. Sharing, sharing the spooky love. Anywhere you want to add some creepy. It's exactly right. Now, we have a fairly short campfire story, but if this isn't for you, just skip ahead maybe five minutes and we have a full Dark Oak episode waiting for you. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Cynthia confirms. <laughs> confirmed. Confirmed. <laughs> Accurate. All right, without further ado, let's get into this campfire story and get Oktoberfest started. The title of this story is The Dog's Lick. Oh, gosh, I'm already creeped. <laughs> creeped out. Well, it starts with a very warming story. There's a young girl um, that lives with her mother and father, and they care about her very, very much. And unfortunately, they drew the short end of the stick and both her mother and her father are on overnight shifts at the hospital. And while their home is only a short trip from the hospital, they tell their daughter that she's going to have to be in the house alone overnight a few times. Now, she's 12, so it's not great, but they, they encourage her. They said, you got to be strong. We've really got to make these shifts happen. We really need to go help other people. We need you to be a big girl. She's still not convinced that she can do it. And they say, you know what? How about we get you a dog? And we are going to get you this dog and we're going to train it to reassure you. So you'll have a companion all night. So as it turned out, it was this big black shaggy dog and there just wasn't enough room in this 12 year old girl's bed for her and the dog. So what they decided was they would have this dog sleep under the bed and she would put her hand down and so she could pet the dog from under the bed and the dog was trained to lick her hand and her arm to let her know that he was always there and give her reassurance. So this became kind of their routine. So every night she would go to sleep with the dog licking her hand. A few weeks into this routine, she discovered there is a serial killer on the loose in her area. Now, of course, this really terrifies her, right? So if there's any night she needs this dog to reassure her, it's that night. So she lays in the bed, she puts her hand down, and the dog licks. The next morning, she wakes up and is so pleased that her dog was there to help her. 
She made it. She's a big girl. She wasn't scared of the serial killer. She didn't have to call her mom and her dad. She walks into the bathroom after stretching. There, written in blood, is humans can lick too. (laughs) Zing! Just the idea, like the visual image of this one, just wow. So I'm pretty sure you shared that ghost story in sixth grade (laughs) when we were at sea camp. Don't give away all my secrets. I'm just saying I remember it all these years later. (laughs) You know, here I am 40 years later, just terrifying Cynthia. And it's still just as creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Campfire story. You gotta so have fun. it. I love it. You I gotta love have it. it. That's awesome. <laughs> well, Cynthia, I think you are bringing us our October Fest episode today. I do. And I am. And um, get ready because this one is also a little on the creepy side. I'm going to open it up with a little song. Let's see if you recognize this. Okay, let's go. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Bing, bing! Yeah. (laughs) I'm so excited. Any guesses what we're going to be talking about today, Stephanie? Please bring me some Lizzie Borden. Oh, well, I think I might. That's right, y'all. We are going all the way back to 1892 to Fall River, Massachusetts. Now, before I start with the facts of this case, I want to say that my husband is from Boston. So last time we were up there visiting, we actually took a tour of the Lizzie Borden house. And I literally stood right there in the rooms where all of this happened. Have you ever been there? Um, I haven't. I do want to ask, though, I've heard it's almost like a maze, like the way the rooms like... You know, it's like you have to pass through rooms to get to other rooms and things like that. Is it like that? Correct. And I will I will oh. give a little explanation as to why as we get further into the episode. But it okay. is like I love old houses and this is very much like an old house, obviously, um, that is now in the middle of like a pretty built up city. It's a cool house, but it's creepy. Because and part of it is because of the layout of it. And then part of it is, of course, because we know what happened there. And that's part of the fun. And they've kept it like, you know, the furniture. A lot of it is reproductions now, but it's made to look exactly like it did back in the day. Like they haven't changed anything they can keep to make it feel like you're still back in 1892 when all this happened, they kept and they've done a really good job of like preserving that. It's really, it's pretty cool. I don't know. I feel like, I don't know why it is the layout of the house like makes me more, I don't know. Concer- like, I don't know. I feel like if it's just one big room, there's nowhere for like ghosts to hide. <laughs> but with all these like nooks and crannies and extra doors and passageways and stuff, I feel like that to me makes it so much scarier. It's pretty scary. It's okay. pretty. There's even like a bedroom in the attic, which is where their housekeeper lived. Oh. Um, it's, you know, and old houses are creepy in general. Like everything's a little smaller. Everything's yeah. a little darker. Everything's more narrow. Hardwood floors, which I love, but everything's creaky. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, okay. It's creepy. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to start our story out with Andrew Borden. 
So during this time in history, and I think this is so interesting, part of what I love about this case is just how differently people thought back then and how like they still did things that we do today, but they just did them so differently. But back in 1892, there was this idea called the science of physiognomy. And this is now considered junk science. But at the time, it was very popular. And Andrew Borden was a perfect example of this so-called science. So what it is, is it's where it's believed that a person physically resembles their emotional characteristics and personality. So like, yeah. So like a pretty young, fresh faced girl would be considered, oh, she must be very sweet and kind. Well, Andrew Borden was tall, plain and very gruff looking. And his personality mirrored this. <laughs> Why am I mine? Okay, this guys, just bear with me for a minute. This is a bit of a segue, but it's kind of like when people start to look like their dogs. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that's probably a different kind of science, but related. <laughs> okay. All right. The other side of the coin. But okay. yes. Yes. Back in the day, like they believed this was actually science. So clearly I would be an angel. As angelic looking as I am. <laughs> as would you. You're a Disney princess. I'm an angel. Disney Princess, the Hot Mess Express. It's all the same, right? (laughs) Depends on the day. All right. Well, Andrew was a great businessman, but he was very, very tough. Okay. Not a lovey-dovey man in any way. Okay. He actually started off as a cabinet and coffin maker. And one of the rumors surrounding Andrew, and from what I can tell, this is unsubstantiated, but it's still really popular. So I just wanted to share it. Uh, But one of the rumors surrounding him is that to save on costs, Andrew would cut the feet off of bodies if they were too tall to fit into his coffins. (laughs) Because his coffins were not made to order. Okay. They were pre-made, ready-made. That's how he was able to sell them at such a discounted price. Okay. So if a body didn't quite fit, he would just get creative to give, you know. I didn't realize coffins were kind of custom made during that time like they're not custom made now i mean the decorations are but the sizes are pretty standard yeah there's probably like you know standard sizes yeah i don't know i just maybe they weren't as mass manufactured probably not i mean 1892 okay but the fact is he was a little a bit of a penny pincher he was and slight maybe slightly dishonest sure yeah okay and create creative well, <laughs> but also a little whatever, whatever it is. Slightly macabre. Cut. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Um, it's the yeah. perfect word for it. Yes. All right. Well, after becoming pretty successful with his cabinets and coffins, <laughs> because, you know, essentially they're the same thing. Just, I mean, it is. It's just what goes in it. That's different. Ex- I suppose. Exactly. The only problem. I mean, you don't like cut sides off your plate to make them fit in the cabinets you don't no but generally no maybe i should because mine are overflowing (laughs) maybe he was on to something time for a purge you know i love that (laughs) (laughs) well andrew uh became involved in many other businesses including banks and manufacturing companies but his primary business was in real estate now andrew was married two times his first wife was sarah And she was the mother of their three daughters, two of whom, Emma and Lizzie, survived infancy. Sarah died in 1863 when Emma was 12 and Lizzie was only two. And it was said that she died of uterine congestion, which I'd never heard of, but I looked it up. And it is a thing. 
It's when you get varicose veins and your ovaries and reproductive organs all stop working because the blood backs up, causing all kinds of issues. Um, And she was also said to have disease of the spine, which I can assume may have even been related. So varicose veins. Good. Um, More lady problems that I need to worry about. Great. (laughs) You will find that this case is just full of lady problems. Got some lady problems there. (laughs) It was not a good time to be a lady, in my opinion. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know what you're going to bring up. But yes, I'm going to agree with you right now. Well, two years after his wife's death, Andrew married his second wife, Abby. And at the time of their marriage, Abby was 37 years old. And during this time in American history, that just made her a plain old spinster, like Mm. old maid. There are rumors even now surrounding this marriage that perhaps Andrew just needed a housekeeper and mother for his daughters. And Abby was just happy to have a man want to marry her. (laughs) And so it's speculated that the two may have, you know, this may have been the main attraction between these two. It's more of a business deal. You know, the term spinster is a actual legal term. Is it really? Did you know that? I did not. I have a friend who got married at the ripe old age of 30 in Jamaica. And on her marriage certificate, it says her name and next to it, spinster. Are you kidding? If you don't get married by the time you're 29, you are a spinster. I don't think we use that in the United States anymore, but I think around the world, that's a real term. A legal term. I had no idea. And if so, I was a spinster. I was in my 30s when I married my husband. Well, I know yeah. I, I had like geriatric but, pre- pregnancies. Well, and I will say, I think it's if you've never been previously married, oh. like so your first marriage is when you're in your 30s. Okay. I don't know I'm if that the, plays into it, but. I'm in the clear then, but. Um, I'm in the clear. <laughs> whew, that was close. Yeah. But anyway, she she was not pleased to see it written with her name and spinster next to it. Wow. I had no idea that was actually. Luckily, I was married at 29. So I was never you, a spinster. You just made it. <laughs> Literally by months. I had months to spare. Wow. Yeah. That was really cutting it close, Stephanie. <laughs> well, Emma was 14 when Andrew married Abby, and she only ever called Abby by her first name. It was said that Emma never really liked having Abby around. When she was much older, Emma would say that when her own mother, Sarah, was on her deathbed, she had told Abby that it was going to be her job to watch over her baby sister, Lizzie. And so some people think that Emma never warmed up to Abby because Lizzie did call Abby mother because she was so young. Sure. And Emma may have felt like, you know, she was a bit of a usurper coming in and stepping into that role that Emma felt should have been hers. Yeah, at 12, you kind of feel like you're... I can see how she would feel like she's the woman of the house now. And especially back in this time when 37 was a spinster. That's absolutely true. Uh, Even though Lizzie did call Abby mother, it was said that the only person she ever confided in was her sister, Emma. So they were very, very close. Okay, sweet. Throughout the years, Andrew always remained extremely frugal and bragged about never making a business deal unless he was able to pay in cash. So he always remained out of debt. He became very prominent in Fall River because he built an entire business block. So everybody knew the name Andrew Borden. And with this success, Andrew, of course, had the resources to have a very comfortable lifestyle. However, his idea of comfort and the modern idea of comfort were vastly different. At this time, indoor plumbing and electricity in homes was definitely becoming a popular way of life. But Andrew didn't feel that these extravagances were necessary. 
so he chose to keep his homes more primitive. The women in his home, specifically his two daughters, would disagree. And at one point after his financial success, he moved from a family home that his father had lived in to the home where our story takes place, which is the home on 2nd Street. But despite his wealth, this move was described as a step over, not a step up. Hmm. He even did some renovations on this new home, and he actually removed some of the already existing plumbing. He did keep a couple of sink basins and one faucet in place. But that was the extent of what he was willing to do. And it was said that everyone in the home had to be their own chambermaid. Okay, not great. Not fun, for sure. Now, despite Andrew not being a very warm and fuzzy man, he did have a special relationship with his youngest daughter, Lizzie. He did not wear a wedding band to symbolize his marriage to Abby. But when Lizzie gave him a thin gold band, he wore it every day and never took it off. Oh, that is special. It is sweet. So he did have a soft side. Now, also cut the legs off and shove them in. <laughs> you know. <laughs> he got Disney s- Princess, Hot Mess Express. You know, you never know what day you're going to get. <laughs> never know. Uh, Lizzie took after her father and that she was known to be a very straightforward person. No nonsense. And she said that her dad was pretty closed off when it came to money, but that she never asked him for anything that she really wanted that she didn't get. Although sometimes she would have to ask more than once. (laughs) All right. It was very obvious that Abby, although technically the woman of the house, held no control whatsoever. There was an instance when Andrew had hired someone to come paint the house, but he told the painter that Lizzie, not Abby, would be the one to select the color and that no work was to be done until Lizzie had given her approval. Ooh, okay. Interesting, right? Lizzie and Emma also received the exact same allowance as Abby did. And while Lizzie and Emma got to spend theirs on whatever they wanted, Abby had to use hers for household expenses. But despite this, Abby was known to keep her mouth shut and any complaints she may have had to herself. Well, I guess if this was an arrangement where she really needed to be married and he really just needed to have a placeholder wife, maybe that's the arrangement. It could be. It could be worse. Yeah, she could be a spinster. (laughs) What could be worse than that? (laughs) Apparently, very little. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, she doesn't have to worry about her future. She is taken care of. I mean, not lavishly, not even, (laughs) not even comfortably per se. But she definitely does have financial security and she has a husband. And yes, you know, I mean, maybe it was working out. Yeah. I mean, there were pros to this arrangement, if that's what it was. Sure. Now, the girls, Emma and Lizzie, were much less likely to keep their complaints to themselves. (laughs) About five years before her death, Abby had asked Andrew to purchase a home so that her family members could live within their means, like, and pay affordable rent. And he did that for her. Emma and Lizzie threw a fit and said that he needed to purchase property of the same value for them. And he tried to. But the value of the girl's property didn't come out to be quite as much as Abby's. So it caused a huge riff in the family. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. 
So from that point on, Emma and Lizzie refused to have dinner with their parents. The girls would no longer speak to Abby. And Lizzie refused to call Abby mother anymore. From that point on, she only referred to her as Mrs. Borden and would even correct friends and neighbors if they referred to Abby as Lizzie's mother. One time she told her dressmaker that Abby was a mean, good-for-nothing thing. They sound a little bratty. Oh, just wait. (laughs) (laughs) They are a little bratty. Money seemed to be the primary source of unhappiness in the Borden home. This house where Andrew and his family lived was not on the hill, which is the neighborhood where the wealthy, respected families lived. Laguna Beach. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Instead, the Borden house was on the flats, which is where the Irish Catholic, French Canadian, and Portuguese immigrants lived. Uh, What could be worse? (laughs) Not much. (laughs) Fall River was separated by classes, and Andrew though he was absolutely one of the most elite members of society and definitely could have afforded to live on the hill, he was fine living where he was, on the flats. But Emma and Lizzie were a lot less comfortable with this. You see, Andrew wasn't the only wealthy Borden. He actually came from a long line of wealth. In fact, Andrew did not receive as much of an inheritance as his brothers had. And again, Andrew didn't seem to be bothered by this, and he definitely made up for it with his successful business dealings. But Emma and Lizzie were very much aware that they were not living as comfortably as their cousins were over on the hill. So there was like an awful lot of like keeping up with the Joneses here. Yeah, sounds like it. And again, it makes them sound pretty bratty. But at the same time, this was a different time. Not a whole lot of like valuable things for women to do. So... Part of me thinks maybe they were just bored and this is just what they did to occupy their time. It's true. I think in that era, especially for wealthy women, kind of being seen and being in these social activities, social circles, debutante type stuff. Yes. Now, granted, I mean, they were getting older at this time, too. So I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's still, you know, a thing for them. But I imagine the social scene, again, they're not working. Right. They're just being kind of taken care of by their father until they get married off, Mm -hmm. I imagine. Yeah. Maybe they were just bored. Bored, yeah. And um, at this point, they're approaching their 30s. Well, Spinster, Emma is in her 30s. Spinsterhood is coming. It, beware. <laughs> uh, Emma is a, almost 42, and Lizzie is 10 years younger than her. So they are getting older. Oh, oh yeah. Definitely old mates. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> and they did, like, they dressed in the finest of things. Like, so like the things that they could control, they did. They were top notch. Like they hung out with the finest of people. They dressed incredibly fashionably. But where they lived remained, you know, still something that bothered them. And this was back when women lived with their fathers. Or, they didn't have an option. No. I mean, because actually that thought did cross my mind. I said, well, why don't they just move to the hill? And I went, oh, that's not an option. That's not what you did back yeah, then. That's not yeah. what you did. So about a year before the murders, in June 1891, the Bordens reported a theft in their house. Abby's jewelry drawer had been rifled through and a gold watch and chain, which was very sentimental to her, had been taken. Andrew's desk was missing some cash, some gold, and some commemorative streetcar tickets. Now, this theft occurred in the middle of the day. 
But all of the women who were home at the time, along with their housekeeper, Bridget, reported hearing nothing at all. Huh. Now, this is where we talk about the house. Okay. The way this house was set up was a little strange. So again, going back to Andrew just needing very minimum. He didn't want to waste any kind of space with, you know, halls. That's just a waste. (laughs) Those darn halls. halls. Always getting in the way. I know. (laughs) So lavish, those halls. It's like necks. Like, what do we even need them for? Just attach our head straight to our shoulders. Right. (laughs) Who needs to look left and right? (laughs) Just turn your shoulders. Turn your body. Right. Use the torso. (laughs) So there were no central halls in the house. So the only way to get from one bedroom to another, you would have to go through like this chain of bedrooms. So in order to get to Andrew and Emma's room where this stuff was stolen from, whoever did it had to go through Lizzie's room. Okay, but Andrew and Emma's room separately. Andrew and I'm sorry, did I say Emma? Andrew and Abby. Okay, I was just making sure this wasn't a different kind of story. (laughs) It's not that scary, okay? Andrew and Abby's room. Room. Okay, I understand. Yes, but also to get to Emma's room, you had to go through Lizzie's room. So Lizzie's room was just kind of like, her room was the hall. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) got it. Okay. I think that's typical too, isn't it, of some old architecture? I have been through some older ones. I have a friend who um, has, I mean, a house, I think it was built around the same time in Ohio that is a similar upstairs. Mm -hmm. You have to walk through. So there's basically four bedrooms, but you have to walk through each bedroom to get there. And then I think it was in St. Augustine, the Lightkeeper's house is built like this as well. Okay. Where you have to walk through. And I think that was around the same time period. So maybe that's... That's typical. It probably was of the time because, again, and if you think about it this way, I think part of the explanation for that was you could open windows on either side and it would ventilate through the house. True. Because at at this time, plumbing, indoor plumbing and electricity was just becoming popular. Yeah. I think that was it is airflow could more easily like flow through the bedrooms. Yes. Yes. That makes sense. So that's. But either way, in, in reference to the theft. It would be very hard for somebody to sneak around and, like, hide in a corner and stuff. Right. And I think that's what people allude to. They never did figure out who who stole these items. But almost as soon as the investigation began, Andrew ended up calling off the investigation, saying that he didn't think the police would be able to find the real thief. But from that point on, Andrew would lock his bedroom door every day when he left the house and then he would leave the key on the mantle in the sitting room. Who who would ever find it there? No one. <laughs> Except for all the people who live there. <laughs> Except for all the people that saw him put it there. <laughs> right. Who were probably the only people home when this theft occurred. But who were probably the people that stole your stuff to begin with. But you know, we won't we won't dwell on that. Right. <laughs> on August 2nd, 1892, two days before Andrew and Abby's death. The Borden family ate leftover swordfish for dinner. Remember, there is no electricity in this house, and it's the dead of summer, and they are eating leftover fish. So Andrew and Abby got very, very sick, while Bridget, the 26-year-old Irish Catholic immigrant housekeeper, and Lizzie had much milder symptoms, but they still didn't feel great. Emma had been away for a couple of weeks visiting friends, so she was spared from this food poisoning. Well, thank goodness. Saved from the warmed 
over swordfish. Well, listen to this. This is crazy to me. Eating food that had not been properly refrigerated and therefore had started to turn, you know, rot, rot, (laughs) was so common that it had its own name. It was called the summer complaint. Oh, boy. Y'all, y'all, just pitch that fish. Like, but isn't that crazy that, like, eating rotten food was, like, it happened so often that it literally had its name because it would happen in the summer when it was super hot out. So it was just known as, oh, they've got the summer complaint. They ate rotten food. (laughs) I mean, of all the rotten food you could eat, too, I imagine rotten fish. I Girl, I'm telling you. I mean, rotten meat, none of it is good, but. Some rotten fish, y'all. I mm. like sometimes not rotten fish is like pretty. Yes, bad, so. and I enjoy seafood, but yeah. mm, no rotten sword. And swordfish is like a meaty, like steak-like fish too. So we're not talking about like little. St- okay, she. I'm telling you, out of everything, I literally feel like you're turning green right this, now. In front this of part me. literally makes I I feel like I have a pretty strong stomach. Like I was looking at the photos. The photos are, are graphic. Like I mean, we do true crime, yeah, like all day every day. So like <laughs> I can handle it. This makes me want to throw up. Yeah. Okay. So all right. And what is it? The summer condition. The summer complaint. Oh, the summer yes. complaint. Now, despite this being so common, it had its own name. The summer complaint. The next morning, Abby went to see her family doctor. Dr. Bowen, who happened to live across the street, and she told him that she thought she had been poisoned. Now, when the doctor learned that the family had eaten warm leftover fish, (laughs) he chalked their complaints up to eating warm leftover fish. Occam's razor here, folks. He did, however, follow Abby home so that he could examine Andrew also. Okay. Now, by this time, Andrew must have been feeling a lot better. Because when the doctor made his way over, he was met with an angry Andrew shouting at him that he was not welcome and that he would not be paying for this visit. Boy, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> and Abby's like, but we're, we're, we're sitting on the pot here right. and I'm cleaning out my own chamber pot. So can I can I get some relief here? Oh, yeah. What a visual. Yeah. <laughs> there was anything better than leftover swordfish it just got worse (laughs) it was thinking of having leftover swordfish with no indoor plumbing oh no not good (laughs) stinky (laughs) who knew that what would bother me the most about this case would not be the murder (laughs) well that evening okay the later that evening everyone in the house got sick again oh no this time except for lizzie This time, Lizzie did not get sick. Okay. And this time, they got sick after eating mutton stew. I don't even know what that is. Like, I was so grossed out at this point. I was like, I'm not even going to Google this. (laughs) Sounds like a beefy stew. It does. It does. Now, this leftover mutton. Oh, you know, my favorite (laughs) kind of leftover. We're not getting dinner after this, are we? (laughs) Let's not do seafood. (laughs) Sushi. Which I love. Yeah, not warm. So getting sick the second time really upset the entire household and not just like tummy upset. Like they were like mentally upset at this point. Oh, okay. And Lizzie was so upset that she went to visit her friend and confided in her that she was worried that someone had gotten so angry with her father, Andrew, during one of his business dealings that they must be poisoning the family's milk. 
The milk. Okay. So I bring this up. We've got a common occurrence of food poisoning, honestly. Like, it's common in this time. Yes. But yet, two members of the family within two days are saying, I think we're being poisoned. And so I just brought it up because what happens next makes the idea that, why did they think they were getting poisoned? Like, it just, to me... It's true. I mean, if you and all of your neighbors are basically getting sick off this yucky food... Why would you automatically think poison? Right. And then given what happens next, you know, there were some murders. I wonder if there were complaints. Yeah, I don't know. Like, had they been getting weird notes or something? Not to my knowledge. I don't know. Nothing I've seen or read. And I've I've looked at several different sources here. Nothing I've seen or read says that um, they were getting complaints. But I just thought that was strange that, you know, they... Two people thought, oh, we must be but getting again, poisoned. again, maybe it's the idea of suggestion. So Abby thought they were being poisoned, mentioned it to Lizzie. And then when she gets sick, she's like, oh, my gosh, maybe we are getting poisoned. That's true. That's absolutely true. That's very, very possible. So the next morning, August 4th, 1892, Adelaide Churchill looked out her kitchen window and saw her neighbor Lizzie Borden standing just inside the Borden's screen door. Now, you know those neighbors who, like, keep an eye on everyone and everything? They always know what's going on? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Well, that was Adelaide Churchill. I love her name, actually. I know. Me too. It's so pretty. So she yelled out to Lizzie, asking if everything was all right. And when she did, Lizzie told her to come over quickly. Someone has killed father. Oh, well, that's not what I expected to hear. (laughs) Nobody expected to hear it. Police were summoned. A lone patrolman, George Allen, literally ran to the house. Now, communication wasn't what it is today. Obviously, it's the 1800s. So all he knew was that there was some kind of trouble at the Borden house, and he expected at most a little disturbance. But what he found was Andrew Borden, as a local newspaper would report later, hacked to pieces. Oh, so this is the 1800s. So these types of crime scenes and events were not treated the way they are today. So while Patrolman Allen is trying to make sense of what he is seeing, a crowd is starting to form, and Adelaide Churchill asks Lizzie, where were you? To which Lizzie said she'd been in the barn looking for iron to make a sinker, that's like a weight for fishing, but that she'd heard a strange noise and she'd come back to the house. Adelaide then asked Lizzie where Abby was. And Lizzie had said that Abby had received a written invitation to go visit a friend so she wasn't home. Lizzie sent Bridget Sullivan, their housekeeper, to fetch the family doctor, Dr. Bowen. But he wasn't home. Now, to help explain how deep the class divides were, there were two other doctors that were neighbors of the Borden family, but they were immigrant doctors, not Protestant Yankee doctors. So Bridget left a note with Dr. Bowen's wife asking her to send Dr. Bowen to the Borden house immediately, but she never thought to ask either of the other two doctors to come. Silly. Silliness. Yes. But doesn't that like tell you like so much of kind of like how things were? It's just ridiculous. It's just, no, it's just completely ridiculous. ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. But things were kind of ridiculous back then. Yeah. Eaten. Rotten fish. The summer complaint. Like, not believing that Irish immigrants could be doctors. I know. Yeah. Silly. Very silly. Well, when Dr. Bowen finally did arrive, he actually examined Andrew. 
And at this point, Emma was still visiting friends in Fairhaven more than 30 miles away. But Bridget was starting to get nervous because she felt that Abby should have been home from her visit with her friend by now. Yeah. So as she's expressing her concern about Abby, someone from this crowd that's beginning to form said that they thought they'd seen Abby come home that morning. So Bridget and Mrs. Churchill decided to go around the house looking for Abby. Now, this is interesting. The way this house is built, the stairs go up to a second floor landing. And if you are walking down the stairs to get to the first floor, your view would be directly across into the guest bedroom. Okay. That's where Mrs. Churchill saw the body of Abby Borden laying face down on the floor. So now Dr. Bowen goes and examines Abby. Yeah. And at first he thought she may have died of fright because, you know, her husband was dead downstairs and, you know, she was a woman. Lady issues. You know. Yeah. Clearly. That's our <laughs> clearly, first. Clearly it's a lady issue. Oh, right. He did not attempt to move her, but he was able to see that she was laying face down in a pool of coagulated blood. And now this I thought was really interesting. If you go to the Lizzie Borden house, you will see these very graphic crime scene photos. And the photos of Abby show her laying face down, but it looks like she's kind of up on her knees with her face on the floor. Okay. And that's always what I thought I was looking at when I saw these photos. But what we are actually seeing in this photo is her laying flat on the floor. But when she was found, her dress was hiked up a little higher than what was considered decent at this time. Lady issues. Yes. So one of the police officers pulled her dress down to cover her, but her petticoats and undergarments stayed bunched up. So she's got like this big bunch on her back. So it almost looks like she's kneeling with her butt up in the air. Okay. But she isn't. Okay. That doesn't make a difference to the case. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, so a little bit of like an optical illusion, basically. Yes, absolutely. Now, what is important to the case is the fact that Abby's blood was coagulated. And that was a very different scene than downstairs with Andrew, whose blood was still oozing. Gosh. Yeah. So it didn't take long to realize that Abby had been the first one killed. Okay. I will spare you the details. They are not difficult to find if you want to know the nitty gritty, but these were very brutal murders. Andrew literally took 10 axe blows to the face. Good night. The scene was so bad that at first newspapers were reporting that Jack the Ripper had come to America. Yeah. Police quickly created a timeline of the morning. Through witness accounts, they determined that at 7 a.m., Andrew, Abby, and Andrew's brother-in-law from his first marriage, so Sarah's brother, right, had breakfast. So even after Sarah's death, Andrew had stayed friendly with his brother-in-law, and this man had just dropped by unexpectedly for a visit out of town. He left around 8.45 that morning to visit more family that lived nearby. At 8.50, Lizzie ate breakfast. At 9.15, Andrew left the house to attend business downtown and abby asked bridget to wash the outside windows at 9 30 abby went to the guest bedroom to make the bed and was killed by 19 blows shattering her skull good grief yeah she got it worse than andrew yeah at 10 45 so an hour and 15 minutes later yeah andrew came home but he had some problems getting the front door open as it had been bolted from the inside. 
Bridget ended up having to go open the door for him. And in doing so, she said something that made Lizzie, who was walking down the stairs from the second floor landing, laugh. So I don't know if she cussed or, or you know, darn this door. Who knows? Yeah. But it stuck out because Lizzie laughed at her. Now, this moment's really important because Lizzie would have been walking down the stairs and standing directly across from this room where her stepmother was laying dead. Okay. So she would have noticed. Some people believe she should have seen her stepmother's dead body on the floor. Now, I will say when we went to the house, they had us walk up these stairs and then turn around. Because, like, you know, like the house, you walk upstairs and then it's almost like a rectangle kind of just like. Yeah. And there's rooms all around you. Yeah. So if you turn around on the staircase, you're going to look directly into this guest bedroom where she was. And they had us do that. And we did. We had a clear shot into this room where she was. So could you have seen a body laying on the floor the way they had it set up when we toured the house? Yes, you could. Okay. So Andrew walks inside after Bridget lets him in. He grabs his bedroom key from the sitting room and he went up the back stairs to his bedroom. So a different set of stairs. Okay, so he definitely would not have seen Abby. Not from the back stairs, okay. no. He came back downstairs later, again from the, that back staircase, and spoke with Lizzie for a few minutes. He asked where Abby was and was told she was out visiting a friend. Andrew was satisfied with that, and he lay down on the sofa for a late morning nap. At some point between 10.45 and 11.45, Andrew was struck in the face and head with an axe 10 times. Almost immediately, police had some pretty big questions. Like, how did this killer come and go without being seen by Lizzie or Bridget? Yeah, or the nosy neighbor. Good question. There was more than an hour and a half between the murders. So where was this killer hiding during this time? Yeah. The main doors of the house were locked. And the back and side doors were within Bridget's sight for most of the morning during her chores. So I guess it's possible someone could have come in, but the majority of her chores, she could see these these doors. Or this person would have been hiding in the house. Potentially. Potentially. They, they did find one like really small, weird closet where they thought, I guess, somebody could have been hiding. But again, to even get there yeah. would have been like, they'd, they'd have to get really lucky. Yeah. Okay. A quick search was done of the house. But when I say a quick search, I mean like literally just making sure that the killer's not still in there. During this search, the police did find a bucket of bloody rags. And when they asked Lizzie what these rags were for, she said she had already discussed that with Dr. Bowen. So please go to Dr. Bowen. Peculiar. It is. They go to Dr. Bowen and they ask him, hey, what's with these bloody rags? And he just assured them that the bucket of rags was of no concern. What? <laughs> so again, back in And this, they're like, sorry, Dr. Bowen. We are indeed concerned. We are. There's a bucket of rags. Because there's two people that... You know, right. got a few whacks and right. we'd like to figure out what's going on. Well, remember, like back in the day, we were just weird about stuff. What was being insinuated was that Lizzie was menstruating. Oh, more lady problems. Yes. That we can't discuss. Yes. <laughs> we just look away, detective. Just look away. Please don't worry about that. Please focus on the dead bodies. Now. Look this, away. This is too much for me to even say out loud. This, <laughs> this period that I get every month. 
So these were her bleeding clots. help us produce your children. That's right. <laughs> we can't speak of those. Please focus on the, please focus on the axe murder yes. downstairs. Um, oh, the lit- I see what you did there. It's a literal axe murder. It is. <laughs> this case, let's just be honest. This case is pretty popular in pop culture. So I just thought it would be a good one for October. Well, it has a song. It does have a song. Kind of makes me want to make little jingles for all of our, all of our <laughs> episodes. Oh, maybe that could be our new thing. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that. So Lizzie says this bucket of, of bloody rags was her her bleeding cloth lady problems yes yeah okay however bridget said that the bucket had not been there even the day before because if it had been she would have thrown them in the wash yeah of course so it was enough bloody rags that it was more than a day's worth ew okay also ew yeah you know we're eating raw fish like i'm not so worried about the bucket of rags you know what i mean like, or not raw fish, rotten fish. Rot. Yeah. I like sushi, but yeah, not, not rotten. No, no, no moldy fish, please. Yeah. Um, let me just tell you something funny about Bridget. Okay. And the, I just think this is a little interesting side story. So before Bridget was the housekeeper, the Borden family had another housekeeper named Maggie. But when she left and Bridget replaced her, no one in the house wanted to learn Bridget's name, so they just kept calling her Maggie, and Bridget was expected to answer to that. Oh, Borden family, just come on. Come on. I have sympathy for them, but yet, at the same time, like, they're not the most sympathetic of families. That's that's an understatement, you know? Okay. So, back in the day, autopsies were performed, but... Like, they literally did this autopsy right there in the family dining room. They did these autopsies. That's pretty common for the time, isn't it? It, it was. Yeah. Yes. With no refrigeration? Nope. Nope. Okay. So no real official search of the Borden house was conducted until 32 hours after the murders. Oh, no time to hide evidence there. No, no. And out of respect for Lizzie and Emma, who was finally brought home from her friend's house they were allowed to mourn for three days before ever being officially questioned now the Borden funeral happened on saturday august 6th more than 2500 people were standing outside on the street for the funeral Hmm. because you know such a well-known prominent family sure and also what a weird case absolutely after the ceremony mourners followed to the gravesite however A couple of hours after everyone had left, the bodies were retrieved. So they were never, like, buried. Okay. But they were retrieved. And another secret autopsy was performed in the Oak Grove Cemetery's Ladies' Lounge. What? I know. I And they don't really say why another autopsy was done. I assume just looking for more evidence, more clues. Yeah. And I guess since they had the funeral, maybe it was a more, like, internal... Like, maybe they didn't want to damage the body more before the viewing or the funeral. Sure. Or if there was a viewing. I don't know. Because they don't have faces. Right. But, but I guess what I'm saying is maybe they took them from there and did a more involved autopsy. I think probably most people have seen these photos. If you've... I mean, these are pretty widely... It's a popular case. And the, the photos are, like, It's widely literally certain. like when you're a teenager and you start to find out you like true crime. This is, like, the one you go to. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, I've mentioned before that, like, my dad was a, a chaplain. And so he went to, like, all these really terrible crime scenes. And the thing I remember him saying, because I remember being like, oh, how gross. And he'd be like, it doesn't even look real because it's, like, so 
these things are so bizarre. Like your brain, it looks like a movie. It looks like when you watch a movie and you're like, oh, that's so fake looking. To me, that's what these photos look like. Like special effects. Yeah. It doesn't even look real. They're so like bad. Yeah. By the day of the funerals, the police felt that they had little choice but to arrest Lizzie because she alone, they felt, had the opportunity to commit the murders. They found it too hard to believe that anyone could have passed through the house unseen by her, especially when she claimed to have been on the first floor while Abby was being murdered above her. It also seemed really hard to believe that Abby's 210-pound body, so she was short, short and stout, so 210 pounds but very short, it was hard to believe that she'd crash to the floor without some kind of a sound. Because, again, these are like hardwood floors. It's a creaky house. Sure. But Lizzie kept saying she never heard anything. And they just didn't think that was possible. It's not like she had her ear pods in. Or, or wait, AirPods, Not ear pods. <laughs> <laughs> they were charging. <laughs> she didn't have her ear pods in. Right. There we go. Finally, the note that the written invitation that Lizzie had said Abby had received. You know, she supposedly got this written right. note from her friend. That note could never be found. And despite a reward, no sender of the note could ever be identified. So nobody ever came forward and said, yeah, I wrote her a note and Abby was visiting me that morning. Mm. Suspicious. I would say fishy, but now it's taken on a whole nother <laughs> rotten fishy. <laughs> fishy is a summer complaint. <laughs> Lizzie's own contradictory answers to police questions were highly damaging. When asked her whereabouts when her father was killed, she gave several different answers to several different investigators. She said she was in the backyard. She said she was up in the loft getting a piece of iron to make sinkers. She said she was up in the loft eating pears. Now, this loft was in the eating, eating pears. pears, which sounds lovely, except the loft was in the barn and it would have been stifling hot that day. And the loft was not a place you would want to go, even if you had to, much less go hang out and eat some pears. Well, especially from what I know of Lizzie, who likes very fine clothing. She likes to think she's kind of the upper crust. Why is she going to go? And what I'm assuming is kind of a mouse-filled barn to eat pears. pears. Yeah. Yes. Now, the one thing, and I actually, I've seen this in different places, but I'm not exactly sure like how true it is and how much is just kind of like urban legend. But apparently there were pigeons. And one of the places I saw that like they had like a flock of pigeons. Okay. And one publication said that they were Lizzie's pets and that her father had slaughtered them as punishment for Lizzie to Lizzie, like punishing Lizzie for something. Oh, yikes. But then something else I saw said that, no, they were meat pigeons and slaughtering them is just literally what they did. Okay. But um, I don't know where exactly the pigeons were located, but if she did in fact have pet pigeons and they were located in the barn or in the loft that's the only reason why i can see why she may have gone to visit them but even if she had it was stifling hot that day and the loft was not going to be a place that you'd want to hang out for very long so even if she did just go check on her pigeons like mm. so she checked on her pet pigeons while eating pears potentially <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> you're on a roll <laughs> All right. Well, an officer did go look at this loft, but he testified that the dust on the floor was undisturbed by footprints or trailing skirts. Or trailing skirts. Okay. I don't know. 
So one of the things that seemed to help Lizzie's story was the fact that she had been neat and clean when first seen after the murders. And the police were certain that the murderer would have been covered with blood. Well, I think everybody would think that, You would think that. Yeah. Now, interestingly, medical experts would later say that the trajectory of the spurting blood would have resulted in the murderer not being covered in it. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. But even after that expert opinion, it was hard for the average person, including the police, to believe that the murderer would be spotless, and Lizzie was. Well, especially, like, those big skirts and everything. I mean, how do you avoid it all together and... I don't know. That just doesn't seem right. No, because, okay, I understand maybe it's spurting in one direction, but there's going to be cast offs. Flatter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not buying that. Um, Though puzzled by Lizzie's cleanliness, police were certain that they had found the murder weapon. Lying in a box of dusty tools in the basement was a hatchet head. It was neither rusty nor old but it had been freshly rubbed in ashes. Police believed whoever did this rubbed it in the ashes to make it like appear old and not like stand out. And they also thought that it had been removed from the wood handle because a wood handle could potentially absorb blood as whereas like the metal head part could be like cleaned. So the handle would have been removed after it was used. Yeah, it was used and then they disposed of the handle. Yeah, okay, got it. And just threw the head in a wherever. But then why not just get rid of the whole thing? I don't know. All right. Because <laughs> that would that would make too much sense. Okay. When the news broke that Lizzie was under suspicion, the public was horrified. The Boston Globe expressed the public's indignation by saying that the only person that the government can catch is one whose very innocence placed her in its power. The poor, defenseless child who ought to have claimed by very helplessness their protection. Indeed. Mm. Indeed. Just give her a pair. <laughs> Just give her a pair. Give her a pair. <laughs> and a pigeon. And a pigeon. This poor lady. <laughs> During the summer of 1893, it seemed all of America was riveted with the town of New Bedford, Massachusetts, where Lizzie Andrew Borden was going to be tried for the gruesome axe murder of her father and stepmother. All other news paled in comparison because not only a particular woman, but the entire Victorian concept of womanhood was on trial for its life. I mean, as it should be. I mean, doesn't she represent every Victorian woman? It's like looking in a mirror, honestly. (laughs) When I look at Lizzie, I'm like, it's all of us. It's all. She is us. (laughs) Now, again, during this time, I mean, there were just such interesting belief systems. I love it. It's so interesting. Uh, there were some really, as we've already discussed, bizarre ideas when it came to women. And it was said that the defects of the female anatomy included sloping shoulders, broad hips, underdeveloped muscles, short arms and legs, and poor coordination. <laughs> And because of this, there was just no way that a short-armed, uncoordinated weakling of a woman could swing an axe with enough force to crash through hair and bone almost two dozen times. What what would these folks that wrote that think if they're watching some of these, like, Alaska survival shows with these women that are, like, building their own, like, log cabins? <laughs> I love how these are all, they're not just characteristics. They are defects defects too oh just wait just wait (laughs) defects because in addition to our physical 
in capabilities. Absolutely. Scientists studied the size of women's skulls. Yeah. While psychologists examined the contents. Okay. And among the qualities found to be essentially female were spiritual sensitivity, a good memory for minutia, minutia, and okay. a great capacity for ennobling love. These positive attributes, however, could not obscure the psychologist's basic premise that women are illogical, inconsistent, and incapable of independent thought. It is no accident that these traits bear striking resemblance to those attributed to children. And as one psychologist pointed out, women are merely large babies. No. No. I know. It's like so bad it makes me laugh. No. It literally makes me laugh. They are short-sighted, frivolous. No. And occupy, listen to this, occupy an intermediate stage between children and men. We're basically, we're basically short, small-headed Neanderthals. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> I'm, how did I even get here today? How am I reading that? I, I'm pretty sure your husband had to bring you and direct you here. Clearly. Yes. And he's he's clearly learned you in, in the ways of podcasting. Thank goodness for these men, folks. <laughs> so because of all... I don't even know how you drove your car. <laughs> I didn't. He dropped me off. He's going to pick me up. That's true. Yeah. Okay. All right. But you're going to need to figure out how to make dinner. Well, that I can because do. Because it's minutia. That I can. I mean, that's just a woman's job. That's just a woman's that job. That and barren babies. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. Thank goodness. Maybe that's where all of our, our skill goes. Into the womb. <laughs> the womb. Isn't Which it? also we will not discuss. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I talked to the doctor about it. It is nothing to be concerned about. <laughs> Pull that, wink, wink. Pull that dead woman's dress down. She's showing some ankle. Right? Oh my gosh. It's it's so like, I mean, if I live during this, it makes me angry because I'm like, I can't believe women were treated this way. But it's also so ridiculous. It I find it comical. It's just, ugh, it's crazy. So because of all this, it was believed that women did not have the ability to think things through. And clearly, the murderer of the Bordens had planned things quite well. Not only had he managed to murder two people and elude the police, but he had shown remarkable tenacity by hiding for more than an hour after murdering Abby in order to do the same to Andrew. Incredible. I mean, no we, woman could ever do never. that. Never. So these stereotypes, as comical, if that's what you want to call them, as they are now, saved Lizzie Borden. Because to me, at least, it seems highly improbable that if a man had been on trial for all of this, that he could have ever been found not guilty. I mean, like the only other person at home, like, you know. Yeah. Now, how she got changed so quickly, that's interesting. But again, she she may have had a whole hour based on the timeline, right? Yeah, the time. The and, and again, this is 1892. So like, yeah. You know, I mean, even at their best. But even at that, every single thing lines up with her being the killer to me. It does. Now, I still have some doubt just because, honestly, when you go through the house, like, they frame it that she's innocent. And I don't even remember, like, what in particular. I think they just bring up, like, all the questions. And it's kind of fun. And you want to be like, but really, like, you know, you kind of <laughs> almost get on her side. Like, just because 
Well, that's so she doesn't haunt yourself. Probably. When you're staying in her house. Probably. Th- th- that's probably why they, they have to, they're like, I have to come to work tomorrow. Like, exactly. They're like, let's talk nice to Lizzie, guys. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> well, during Lizzie's trial, two pharmacists from Smith's drugstore testified that Lizzie had been shopping for poison on the afternoon before the murders. She'd not asked for arsenic, which was sold over the counter. She asked for the more lethal Prusik acid, claiming that she needed it to clean her seal skin cape. And when she was asked on the stand, Lizzie denied the pharmacist's story, and she even denied knowing where Smith's drugstore was. This was strange, though, because the store had been there for 14 years <laughs> on a street less than five minutes away from the house in which she'd lived since birth. But you know what I say to that? Well, she's a woman. How could she have possibly recognized that this store was there her entire life? I mean, well, it's true. I mean, especially, no, to, I mean, I have to say, maybe she always sent her housekeeper shopping. There's, I, I mean, I really don't know. I really don't know. I just think it's funny that, like, in some areas, they expect her to be just like, she couldn't know anything. She's a woman. I mean, how could, but then in another area, they're like, oh. Now, wasn't she on hadn't the doctor given her something like a sedative of some kind too after after the murder she was medicated um i wonder if that played a role in some of her lucidity it absolutely could have because she was like interviewed she was part of an inquest and and all of this and they would ask her questions and a lot of her answers were i don't know or i don't know what you mean by that or i'm not sure what you're asking and of course they made it sound like she was just being difficult but to me i thought well she's being very precise if she doesn't understand the questions she's just saying what do you mean by that and yeah but yes she was medicated during this time period so of course like that could well and just in her trauma and on its death. own and that like finding the the bodies of her yeah. parents and again this is assuming she's innocent but you know you yeah. like that'd be kind of traumatizing absolutely absolutely so the prosecution would produce witnesses who testified that abby's body lying on the guest room floor was clearly visible from the staircase like i told you that's like a big that's a big question it's like if she really was coming down the stairs which she, we know she was because she had that interaction right. with bridget right why didn't she see the body but the defense claimed it was almost completely obscured by a bed. I will tell you, the open door, you know, these are small rooms. So open door, and then literally there's the bed. And it's like the bed would have been in between her and the body. Okay. But at least the bed I saw in the house that is supposed to be a reproduction of the actual bed that was there, like you could see under the bed and see that there was a body there. Yeah, maybe she just didn't notice or she thought there was a blanket over the bed or, you know what I'm saying? Like, how many times notice? Yeah. How many times do you walk by something in your own home and not see it? Right. So it suspicious. Yes. Yeah. But does it mean it's not a smoking sh- gun? No, not yeah. at all. It's not a smoking axe. It is not. <laughs> <laughs> During trial, a damaging piece of evidence was introduced for Lizzie. So soon after the murders, Lizzie had turned over to the police a spotlessly clean, fancy blue dress that she swore she had been wearing on the day of the murders. But immediately, the women in town began to talk because this was a party dress. This was not a day dress. Ooh. Mm -hmm. No woman would wear this type of dress, which was made of a heavy wool fabric around the house in the August heat. Okay, that's... Wait, what about the nosy neighbor? 
does she know she was wearing? Well, witnesses, and I don't know which ones, but okay. witnesses did confirm that Lizzie was wearing blue on the day that her parents had died. Okay. But no one could swear that this dress that was presented, that Lizzie said she was wearing, was the exact blue dress she had been wearing. All right. That seems fair. Now, making matters even worse for Lizzie, her friend Alice Russell admitted that she had seen Lizzie burn a blue cotton dress in the kitchen stove three days after the murder. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, this dress was soiled, Lizzie said, with brown paint. Red (laughs) fur. Smoking axe. Smoking axe. Brown paint, noted the prosecutor, is a color not unlike that of dried blood. Now, burning a dress in the stove because it was stained with paint seems strange to me. Like, that seemed weird. But apparently that was kind of common practice. And the only thing that made it unusual was the timing. Uh, More than unusual. I mean. (laughs) The timing. The timing. I mean, now she was menstruating, so... Even if she, <laughs> even if she was the murderer, I mean, can we blame like, her? She's hysteric. What it's little hysterical. mind she has because she's a woman. It, 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 she's just bleeding. She can't be held responsible. <laughs> Honestly, as a woman, I, I don't know. That, that has some validity. <laughs> <laughs> some months, you know, I'm just like, eh. girl, if you need, if you need my help burning some clothes, <laughs> you know where to find me. <laughs> oh, be waiting for that call. <laughs> All right. Well, the first blow to the prosecution came when Judge Dewey ruled that Lizzie's damaging inquest testimony was inadmissible and the evidence was barred regarding the alleged attempt to buy poison. So they could not bring that in. The fact that a couple of pharmacists were saying she tried to buy poison, they wouldn't bring that into trial. And this definitely made things harder for the prosecution, but their biggest worry was that the jury would believe in the moral improbability that a woman of refinement and general training, such as Lizzie, could have conceived and executed so bloody a butchery. Oh, definitely not. As he repeatedly reminded the jury, we must face this case as men. (laughs) And I'm sure this was an all-men jury and court and everything, I'm assuming. I did not read that, but I can only assume. Like, I mean, because what other woman could listen to such horrible things? Couldn't. I mean, we almost thought Abby just died of fright right then and there. Exactly. And no other woman could be part of this jury no. and have to be subject to such horrible, I mean, violence. Those short-armed infants. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, women. I mean, women. <laughs> Well, the prosecution produced medical experts from Harvard who testified that any average-sized woman could have swung an axe with force enough to commit the murders, and the trajectory of blood would have been away from the assailant. Lizzie's tidy appearance, minutes after the crime, had no bearing on her guilt or innocence, according to these Harvard medical experts. The defense discounted their testimony by asking the jurymen whether they would put more store in Harvard scientists than in their own New England common sense. <laughs> I, I know which one they picked. <laughs> After both sides rested, the jury was sent off to deliberate. They returned in one hour. The New York Times reported that Lizzie's face became livid. Her lips were compressed as she tottered to her feet to hear the verdict. Before the clerk could finish asking for it, the foreman cried, not guilty. 
Lizzie dropped to her seat as an enormous cheer went up through the spectators who were climbing onto the benches, waving their hats and handkerchiefs and weeping. Wow. Yes. Quite the scene. It was. The the um the town really got behind Lizzie because again, they truly I mean this I mean we're joking about it, but like the idea that a woman did this was so unheard of at the time, which makes me laugh is not the right word, but like if these people could only see like what women are actually capable of, like the evil that women are capable of, yeah. it would blow their minds. It would have been difficult for any jury to convict beyond all reasonable doubt because sure. The evidence that was presented, it was all circumstantial. Yeah. However, in the nearby bar to which the jurors quickly headed, a reporter learned that there had been no debate at all among the 12. All exhibits were ignored. Their vote had been immediate and unanimous. It was only to avoid the impression that their minds had been made up in advance that they sat and chatted for an hour before returning with their verdict. (laughs) yeah okay Mm -hmm. okay fall river society which had defended her throughout her ordeal quickly separated themselves from lizzie after the trial lizzie was ready to move on she was determined to have all the things that she had missed in her youth and with what some considered pretty indiscreet haste she bought a large house on the hill (laughs) and named it maplecroft she also asked to be called Lizbeth, and she stopped going to the church whose parishioners had defended her so energetically. Now, the rumor mill had plenty of material when townspeople learned that Lizzie had bought and destroyed every available copy of local reporter Edwin Porter's publication called The Fall River Tragedy, which had included portions of her inquest testimony. So she bought and destroyed every copy she could. Lizzie continued to live at Maplecroft and grew more and more isolated as time went by. Local children began to sing, Lizzie Borden (laughs) took an axe. Yeah, I could see that. Mm -hmm. Lizzie Borden died on June 1st, 1927 at the age of 66 in Fall River. Emma died later in New Hampshire. And we don't really know why, but they had not spoken in years. They'd had some kind of a falling out. They had not remained close after An admission of guilt, maybe? Potentially. The women were buried near the Borden Monument in Oak Grove Cemetery. The truth about the events on 2nd Street lies buried there, along with Andrew, Abby, Emma, and Lizzie. But back then, in the summer of 1893... Most Americans knew in their hearts that no young lady like Lizzie could have murdered her parents with an axe. (laughs) When I was touring the Lizzie Borden home, they took us up to Bridget's attic bedroom and told us that many years later, Bridget got very sick and believed she was on her deathbed. That was when she asked a trusted friend to come visit her so she could get something off of her chest. Something about the murders that occurred many years before. But before her friend could come visit, Bridget made a complete recovery and no confession was ever made. No! And that is the twisted tale of Lizzie Borden. Ugh, so good. So good. Mm -hmm. So you think she did it? Yes. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I completely did. And I thought everybody else did until you said you didn't think so. Well, 
I think she could. I think she did it as much as I think anybody did it. She could have done it. Absolutely. I guess I'm saying it was more than likely her because I find it so impossible that it could have been someone else. Yes. I mean, she's the most probable person, of course. Yes, of course she is. But to me, it's kind of fun to think that maybe we just had it wrong. Like maybe we just had it wrong. It's that's also sad to think about. Like, well, I, I, and I think the also the other side of it is no matter how you split it, a murderer goes free. Absolutely, which I hate actually. Yes, yes. Either no matter what, if it was her or if it was somebody else, nobody was ever convicted. Probably she did it. The fact that Bridget, you know, had this deathbed confession, or maybe she was like, you know, I always wanted to do it every time they called me Maggie, but I didn't. <laughs> maybe Bridget did it. What if Bridget did it? What if Bridget had just finally had enough? But she's a woman too. She see, and that yeah. well, clearly, then that wasn't it. Yeah, it couldn't have been her woman. And again, I can't remember exactly why I walked away from the tour saying, oh, maybe she didn't do it. And again, they they probably just like made it, you know, you're going there to pay money to be entertained, which honestly, when I think about it's kind of gross. It kind of makes me feel bad. <laughs> like we're exploiting these I people. I don't know. I mean, it is a little piece of history. It, it, that's true. That's true. I, but I mean, I will also tell you that at the gift shop, my then 12-year-old son bought a glow stick axe at their gift shop. So sweet. I know. You know what I mean? So sweet. It's a little like gross. Mom of the year. <laughs> and he's... He's 12. So, of course, he's like, oh, cool. And I'm over here thinking like, oh, like, axe murderer. But you don't want to like make it a thing. And of you don't want to be like, don't. this is insensitive. You'll, you'll be like, oh, what a great, cool, glowing axe you got at the Lizzie Borden house. This doesn't, doesn't make light of anyone's death. <laughs> An hour ago, you were looking at pictures of this guy with no face. Like, no, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know. It just kind of like I will say this. Okay, in in all seriousness, again, these are real people, and they're it's tragedy. And there's nothing funny or entertaining about it. Like it's awful. But I will tell you that when you're there in the moment, like it doesn't feel real. It feels like a scary movie or a haunted house, or it feels fun. Well, again, I think that you know we're so far removed from it, yes. and you've just heard it in pop culture. You've heard it in yes. folklore. You've heard it in sing song. Yeah, and so it does. It it just sits differently in our brains. It does. Yeah. So that's the case. But I do love it so much that you brought it for Oktoberfest. I feel like it's all the Halloween vibes. It totally is. And okay, so this house, Lizzie Borden's house, as you are probably aware, is uh, there's a tour, but it's also a working bed and breakfast. You can spend the night literally in the rooms, in like the guest room. No, thank you. I mean. No, thank you. Yeah. But would you ever stay the night or no? I don't know. If you really wanted to go, I'd probably go with you. But because I, I, I would do it. I, I said I went when we went. I tried to get my family and like all of his childhood, like my husband's like childhood buddies and their wives to go, and nobody would do it with me. They were all like, no way. And again, I had my 12 year old with me. So I don't know if I would have, I don't know. Like it's probably best that we didn't. But I do think it would be fun. Would we get any sleep? No. This I will say, mm -hmm. in the next year, mm -hmm. you and I are definitely staying overnight at someplace haunted. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be Lizzie Borden. I don't know if it's going to be one of these haunted lighthouses. I don't know, but I think we should give it a go. I'm excited. We're doing it for the podcast. Uh, it's research, really. For the podcast. Yes. 
and we're only women, you know, so it's, we probably won't even register half of what's happening to us. True. <laughs> it really, I mean, I, yeah. There you go. <laughs> From now on, that's going to be like, anytime I do anything, like anything, I'll just be like, well, you know, I'm a woman. I'm just really in between a child and a man. <laughs> I'm... I'm the missing link. Yeah. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks everybody for listening. We hope you had fun on this episode, this Oktoberfest episode, and we hope you join us next week for more thrills and chills. I said that all wrong, didn't I? No. Oh, okay. Good. Perfect. Oh, oh, perfect. All right, good. Ah, you went happened to second guess yourself. It would have been amazing. Well, you know, I'm like, oh, woman. Probably did it all wrong. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on The Dark Oak, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a Just Us Gals production with artwork by Justice Holmes and music by Ryan Creek.